Well, let me invite you now to uh, open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verse 13 through 16 this morning. If you notice all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul basically launches the epistle with a word of thanksgiving to God. So he says in chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And that theme of thanksgiving really has continued into chapter 2. So again, chapter 2, verse 13, that theme is emphasized. So let me read this uh, portion of uh, God's inspired and inerrant Word uh, given to us for our edification and for God's glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So Paul now is picking up that theme of thanksgiving again that he launched in chapter 1. And he begins by thanking them, thanking God for them in light of the fact of how they received their preaching. And what he's telling them is basically they didn't receive it as if it was just a word of man, but they received it for what it really was, the very Word of God. And so when we look at this section... Paul is thanking God for their reception of the Word of God. So why is he thanking God for that? They received their preaching as it was the Word of God. And Paul is thanking God that they received the Word as the Word of God. Why is he thanking God? Because nobody receives the preached Word as the Word of God unless God Himself has worked in their heart to receive it. That's why He's thanking God. He's giving God the glory and the praise. Remember all the way back in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, before they got to Thessalonica, this is what we read about Lydia. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God was listening. She was listening to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. But that's all she was doing. She was listening. But then, the Lord opened her heart 
to respond to the things spoken by Paul and she got saved. It wasn't until God opened Lydia's heart that suddenly what they were preaching was no longer the Word of man, but it was the Word of Almighty God. And her heart was changed. She heard the message and then she responded in faith to the message. That is why Paul is giving thanks to God for the reason why they received the Word as the Word of God. Because it's the work of God in their hearts. Otherwise, the Gospel falls on deaf ears until God awakens them. And so, back in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, for this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it as not the Word of men, but what it really truly is. And that is, it's the Word of God. Now, in saying that it's not the Word of men, Paul is not denying that God uses human instruments not only in preaching the Word of God, but writing it down. Uh, Richard Phillips said, The Bible did not fall down from heaven completely written, leather-bound, with maps and concordance appended. In other words, it was written by men. So Paul is not denying that, or that it's preached by men. He's not denying that. But what he's affirming is that what they preached and what was later written down was none other than the Word of God. That the Spirit of God so undertook to guide their minds and their wills to choose exactly every word that God wanted written down. Not necessarily applying to what they preached, but it was, it's consistent with that. But the inspiration of the Word of God, the written Word of God, uh, clearly is affirmed here. It's not just the Word of men. A lot of people say, well, men wrote it, so it's got to have errors in it. No, because the work of God undergirded their minds and wills to choose and directed them exactly in how to write. Although He used their personality, He used their vocabulary, He used their writing skills, everything else, God used that, but He guided it in a mysterious way so that what we have and hold in our hands as the Bible is none other than the Word of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's as, if, it's as if God spoke it literally from His mouth. Even though He used men and men wrote it, it's as if God breathed it. God spoke it Himself. Peter says that, these, that, no, one, that uh, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Spirit of God came upon them and moved them to speak exactly what God wanted them to speak and to write. And it's a very powerful word, move, used of wind that can take control of a ship and they just lose control of it. And the wind is guiding it, like in Acts 27, the ship that Paul was on when the storm came. So ultimately, why is it that some believe that the Word of God and the preaching of the Gospel is, is faithful to God's Word and others do not? Why do we believe the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God and others do not? Ultimately, it's due to the work of God. Now, there's many internal evidences of the glory of God's Word. 
the the beauty of the language, the consistency of the of the one message from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, there's many the prophecies that are there that obviously indicate that it's inspired by God. But ultimately, no one believes the Bible is the Word of God except by the internal work of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the things uh, John Calvin taught, but he got it from Scripture. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Them, the Gospel, the mysteries, the, the glory of salvation. To us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And then in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. How do we know them? How do we believe them? How do we embrace them? How do we, why do we respond to them? Because of the work of the Spirit of God. So basically, Paul is thanking God for the way they received uh, the Word of God. And he's rejoicing in that, that God had changed their hearts. And when they listened to Paul and Silas and Timothy preach the Word of God, the Spirit of God so worked in their hearts that they received it as none other than the Word of God. So this is something very uh, powerfully stated. And again, we see why the Apostle Paul is giving all the glory uh, to God alone. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, he's basically said the same thing. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's the work of God. They heard the gospel. Like Lydia, they were listening. They just heard it. Well, that's nice. That's interesting. But when God opened their hearts, suddenly the conviction came. The need for Christ came. Repentance and faith came. Because of the work of God. So God deserves all of the praise for our own convictions that the Bible is the Word of God. We should thank God for that. It's a gift from God that we believe the Bible is from Him. And also our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins all comes from God. That's why we should thank God for that. But he goes on to add at the end of verse 13, He's also thanking God that the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That the Word of God, not only did they embrace it as the Word of God because of God's work, but the Word itself is working in their lives, bearing fruit for God. Paul is thanking God that the Word is working in you who believe. This uh, word for work is a very interesting word in the Greek. It's energeo. It's the word we get our English word energy from. And whenever it's, it's normally used in the New Testament to refer to supernatural power, effectual energy at work. In other words, the Word of God is supernaturally at work in your lives. It's God working through His Word in your life. The Word is working its power in our hearts. 
This is something that the Scriptures itself testifies to its own ability to do. Familiar with Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and, and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So when the Word of God comes and we, we understand the Spirit is involved, but it never fails to accomplish God's purpose in our hearts. The Word of God is something that is active. It's living. Sharper than a two-edged sword. And this working of God through His Word was evident in the fruit that they were bearing as a church. Again, if you refer back to chapter 1, verse 3, Paul makes reference to the power of the Word which was alive in their hearts. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and Father. So this is the Word of God. And it's bearing fruit. And Paul is uh, making his comment to the word, of, the work of the Word. The Word is working in them. See, that sanctifying fruit that we read in chapter 1, verse 3 is due to the Word of God in their lives. This is a question we should ask of ourselves. Do we believe that the Bible is the Word of man or is it the Word of God? What do you really believe? What does your life show that you believe? Is it the Word of man? Or is it the Word of God? If it's the Word of God, how can we neglect it? If it really is the Word of God, how can we ignore it? It's convicting, isn't it? To all of us. If it's the Word of man, well then it's the Word of man. But it's the Word of Almighty God which produces sanctifying growth in our lives, then how foolish are we to neglect it? Paul was saying of this church at Thessalonica, that he was praising God because they not only received the word, the word as the Word of God, but that Word was bearing fruit in their lives because they were in the Word. They were believing it. They were embracing it. They were loving it. And maybe we don't bear the fruit that we should because we're, we're neglecting the Word as the Word of God. We're treating it too much like it's just a Word of man. It's negotiable. I can neglect it. No big deal. I can go a week without reading it. It's just the Word of man. No, it's not. It's the Word of God. And if it truly is the Word of God, it's folly to neglect it. Because what else can bring such fruitfulness and sanctifying influences in our life other than God's Word? And we neglect it to our own spiritual harm and injury. It's like, Spiritual starvation, malnutrition. Because the Word of God is our food for our soul. And a lot of times we're walking around skin and bones spiritually because we're just simply not in the Word. So what do you believe about it? 
Is it the word of man or is it really the word of God? And if it's the word of God, it'll have a priority place in our life. And when that happens, it's going to bear godly fruit in us as we continually are renewing our minds in God's word. Well, that's the first thing that Paul is uh, thanking God for is that they received the Word of God for what it really is. It's the Word of God and it's bearing fruit in their life. And then in verse 14, he's really thanking God for them in another way and that is because they became imitators of the churches in Judea. So in verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So now what Paul is thanking God for is that they began to imitate the churches in Judea. So as the churches in Judea were persecuted by the Jews, so these churches in Macedonia and other places are being imitators because they're being persecuted by their own countrymen, primarily Gentiles. And so he's thanking God that their faith, their belief and confidence in the Word of God is such that they're willing to even suffer for it. Because that's how you really know if you believe the Bible is the Word of God. Are you willing to suffer for it? William Hendrickson said that willingness to suffer for Christ is proof of discipleship. And Paul again, somewhat emphasizing this, back in chapter 1, verse 6, has already indicated their willingness to suffer for their faith. Chapter 1, verse 6, but you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they were suffering. They were willing to suffer for the Word of God, for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, just like the churches in Judea were. And they were suffering with great joy. Chapter 1, verse 6. They received the Word in much tribulation, much opposition, much affliction. They were not only willing to receive the Gospel preached from Paul as the Word of God, they were willing to suffer for it. That's how much they believed that the Bible or the message, they didn't really have the Bible, they had the Old Testament, was really the Word of God. And of course, they were preaching from the Old Testament. They were willing to enter into the fellowship of His sufferings with Christ. Now again, their sufferings is primarily from the hands of the Gentiles. That seems to be the idea here. But it just shows that there's an ancient warfare between God's people and the people of the world. All the way back in... In Genesis 3, when God cursed the serpent, He established that there would be an enmity between the seed of the serpent, unbelievers, ungodly, and the seed of the woman, the godly. There's going to be an age-long opposition. That's why we face it in our world. That's why people don't like the, the values of Scripture or the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's built into the fallen nature of mankind when Adam ate of that fruit and brought the curse down upon his head and all of, the, all of his progeny. But see, with these guys at the church of Thessalonica, they were willing to suffer. And again, back in chapter 1, verse 6, 
they, they received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because never forget this, it is, a, it is an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. Nobody wants to do it. We don't, uh, certainly, I mean, we're not masochists. But if you ever have to suffer for the name of Christ, it is an honor to suffer for Christ. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted, slandered for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Jesus even tried to prepare His disciples for it. In Acts 5, after the Jews flogged the apostles, ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says, and they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day, did that shut them up? Did it silence them? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. See, this is the nature of true faith. True faith believes the Bible is the Word of God. And if you really believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you'll be willing, though we may not want to, but to endure suffering for the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ. Well, Paul then, notice at the end of verse 14, he mentions the churches back in Judea and they suffered persecution from the Jews. And now in verse 15 and 16, Paul lays out five different ways that the Jews persecuted the early church. So he says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Now notice, the Apostle Paul lays the death of, of Jesus squarely at the feet of the Jewish people. Yeah, they incited the Romans, but Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus, remember? It was the Jewish people that basically put him in checkmate by saying, let His blood be upon us and upon our children is what they said. No, they, they were the ones behind the crucifixion of the Lord. They also killed many of His prophets. They drove us out. Now, Paul may be writing this with a tinge of guilt in his own soul because he was there at the stoning of Stephen. Paul was there giving his approval to it. Paul was there trying to drive them out and arrest them. And so, in saying this, he's obviously indicting himself because he was in their camp. But he's acknowledging just how zealously they were committed to persecuting the early church for Christians, the followers of Christ. To lock them up, to get them executed. Then he says they're not pleasing to God. They were murderers. They murdered innocent people. They disobeyed God. They blasphemed God. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. And it's interesting that 
the first century Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, who is both a historian and politician, said of the Jews, they, they are haters of the human race. Why? Because as Jews, they looked down on all Gentiles. They thought they were dogs. They thought they were fodder for the fires of hell. That was the distorted, perverted, sinful attitude of the Jewish people towards Gentiles. And Paul just says they're hostile to all men. And then he may elaborate in verse 16 when he says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Remember, Paul would normally go to the synagogue and once they rejected the message, then he would turn to the Gentiles. But the, but the Jews would try to stir up the Gentiles and the city officials to run them out of town and to persecute them. They did that in Thessalonica, the very city he's writing to. Remember, it was the Jews that, that formed that market mob to come and, and run them out of the, out of the city. So Paul is not anti-Semitic. He's just speaking the historical truth about the animosity of Jews towards Christ and the Christian Gospel. And what really, why the reason Paul is emphasizing this, I think, is because he, he's mainly trying to give thanks to God not only for their fruitfulness, in light of the Word of God, but also their faithfulness to the Word of God. They're willing to endure persecution. Even though they're suffering from the hands of their countrymen, just like the churches in Judea suffered from the hands of the Jews. But they're imitating them. And, and Paul is giving thanks to God for their, for their faith in the Word of God. It was deep enough, it was strong enough that they were willing to endure persecution. They had received the gospel for what it was, the Word of God. Paul says, thank you God for their faith, for their conviction, for receiving our gospel as what it really is, the Word of God. But also, thank you God because they not only just received it as the Word of God, they're willing to even suffer for it. And so he's praising God for uh, emboldening their, their faith, uh, fortifying their faith that they were willing to even endure persecution for the Gospel. Again, Richard Phillips in his commentary said, our ability to stand firm against persecution with conviction and courage continues to turn on this question today. The question being, is the Bible the Word of man or the Word of God for you this morning? Because your answer to that question will determine your fruitfulness for Christ and your faithfulness to the Gospel. If you really believe this is truth from God, then we must stand on it. Even if the world hates it. And then Paul goes on in verse 16 and he kind of wraps this up. And he says, of the Jews, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they, the Jews, always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. 
This is, a, this is a sobering expression here in verse 16 when Paul says that the Jewish people, because of their sin, because of their rejection of Christ and the Gospel, always fill up the measure of their sins. The Jews are living. Basically what this is saying is that the Jews are now living because of their crucifixion of Christ, the rejection of their Messiah, their persecution of the church, the followers of Christ, they're, they're now, they've now, <clears throat> it's like the straw that broke the, the camel's back on, on God's judgment on them. They have filled up their sins fully. They always fill up the measure of their sins. So from, this, from, their, from the time they crucified their Messiah going forward, and all the hatred and animosity against the church, their cup of sin, their barrel of sin, if you will, is now full. It's reached the top. And he says they always fill up the measure of their sins. Meaning that the Jews are now living in a perpetual condition of being full of sin. Now, understand in the Bible, sometimes God says He's, he's withholding His judgment until the fullness of their sins has come in. There's several times in the Bible when that concept is pre- well Israel's has reached the fullness of their sins. They've reached the f- I mean their 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 cup is full. They've reached the point of no return. It's like a a gas tank in your car that never loses a drop of gasoline though you drive it constantly day in and day out. The tank stays full. It's always full. And what Paul is saying is that the the Jews always fill up the measure of their sins. They're always in in a point where the needle points to full. And that's that's an awesome thought. Uh, Jesus even told the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And they did this by not only killing Christ, but also persecuting and killing the prophets and the preachers that Christ sent out. So when... When the Jews get to the point of filling up the the measure of their sins, which they are now at after they crucified Christ and killed the the prophets and apostles, they are ripe for judgment. Their sin has become full. Their sin is the national pattern of their past generations, but now it's reached the climax stage. And now the hammer of God's judgment is about to fall. And so Paul ends the verse by saying, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. This uh, last phrase, your Bible may have, wrath has come at last. I got interested in that phrase, so I looked it up in the Greek, and there's only six other verses that uses this exact same ace telos in Greek, which is translated utmost. Your Bible may have a different translation. Let me emphasize what this actually means. When Jesus uses it, it has the idea of to the end. So, three times in the synoptics, He says, the one who has endured to the end will be saved. To the end. 
In John 13, 1, similar idea. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And then in Luke 8, Jesus spoke of this as an ongoing continual. If that widow comes to the judge, the judge says she will, she will wear me out if she continually comes and never stops. Now that she continually comes to the end, she will wear me out. So that, I think, is the best idea for how to understand it back in verse 16. That wrath has come upon the Jewish people to the end. It's going to be on them and will not be lifted from them to the end. To the end of this age. It's upon them. Now this, this is a sobering idea because I know a lot of people, godly people think that Israel is still the chosen people of God and as a nation. Uh, but this, this seems to say something different. That they have filled up their sin and now God's wrath is on them to the end of the age. I mean, in other words, it's, there's, it doesn't give any hope for any national revival or anything like that. This is actually what Jesus had taught in several places. Remember Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills a prophet, stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you what? desolate. The wrath has come upon them. Now their house is left desolate to the end. They are under the judgment of God's wrath because they crucified their own Messiah plus His messengers. So the wrath of God has come upon them. Their house is left desolate. It's the same thing we read when Jesus saw the lone fig tree. Fig tree being sometimes in the Bible used as a symbol for the nation of Israel. But it had no fruit on it. And so Jesus cursed it. Notice what He said, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And the fig tree withered immediately. No longer. No fruit on the nation. It's, it's quite a condemning concept. In Matthew 21, when Jesus told the parable of the, of the vineyard, when the owner rented out his vineyard to vine growers, and when it was time to receive the produce, he sent his servants, they killed all of them or beat them. And then he finally said, okay, I'm going to send my son. Surely they won't, they'll honor my son. He sends his son. What do they do? They kill him. The Jews knew who he was talking about because Jesus knew in their hearts they're they planning to kill Him. It's really all about them. They knew that. But He asked the question, what will the owner do to those vine growers who kill all of His servants and His messengers and then kill His Son? And they respond, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to others who pay the proceeds at the proper time. And then Jesus draws the point. He says, therefore I say to you, speaking to the Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The kingdom is taken away from Israel. And earlier in Luke 12, who's it going to be given to? Jesus said to His disciples, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. 
So what Paul is saying is basically what Jesus taught. That God's wrath has come upon the Jews to the end. In other words, they are perpetually under God's wrath both now and to the end. I. Howard Marshall summed up this phrase, translated utmost, by just saying wrath has come upon them fully and finally as a nation. And again, this is uh, reflected in in those verses that we just uh, looked at. So, this is the very same people that when Pilate tried to get Jesus let off, cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. And the wrath of God has now come upon them. And it has come to the end. When you say that the wrath has now come upon Israel, in what ways? And if it's wrath that's come upon them to the end, how will that be manifested? Well, it could include certain recent judgments that were taking place when Paul wrote this letter. There's an unprecedented famine in Judea. Paul wrote the letter, say, around 51-52 A.D. In 45, a few years earlier, there was an unprecedented famine in Judea that could be included. There was a brutal massacre of Jews in the temple precincts at Passover in A.D. 49. Maybe that's on Paul's mind as well. The Jews were recently expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius in Acts 18, verse 2. That, all these have just recently happened. <clears throat> that could be an initial surge of God's wrath. But it could also be the ongoing spiritual hardening of Israel that we find in Romans 11. It could also include the 70 AD judgment where the Romans come destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And ultimately it would include the final eternal judgment on the last day. And so the nation of Israel is under the wrath of God to the end. Now, remember, God has promised He's still going to save the remnant. He's not going to deal with the nation as a nation, as a covenant nation, any longer. It doesn't seem like. But He has promised to save the remnant throughout this age. That's why God's promises to Israel are going to still be fulfilled because they apply to the remnant, not the nation as a whole. This is why Paul, even in his own heart, he still loved his people. In Romans 9, verse 3, he says, If I could wish I myself a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is not anti-Semitic. He's just telling the truth and sadly laying out how God responded to it. In Romans 10, 1, Paul says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And so all of this is just reverberating when Jesus says that their house is left to them desolate as a nation, as a whole. But the remnant, God will still continue to save until Christ comes back. So again, the main point that Paul, I think, is making is that he's thanking God not only for their reception of the Word of God, which is bearing fruit in them, but he's also thanking God for their willingness to suffer persecution at the hands of their countrymen, just as the believers in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews. So Greg Beal, who's uh, an acquaintance and also a New Testament scholar, 
kind of summarize, I think, Paul's point here when he said, Paul saw that the redemptive historical epoch of Israel as God's chosen people had come to an end in the decisive judgment of that people. So I think that's basically where, where what Paul is communicating. But in all of that, he's thanking God because they believe that the, the Scriptures were the Word of God. And that not only was bearing fruit, but it was also showing forth their faithfulness. That they're even willing to suffer because of the Word of God. They believed it was the Word of God, not the Word of man. In closing, this kind of reminds me of the uh, 1521, the year 1521, when Martin Luther was put on trial at the Diet of Worms for his writings that attacked the Roman Catholic doctrines of penance and indulgences, purgatory and papal authority. Martin Luther wrote many works saying all of that was totally unbiblical. The opposition, of course, had wanted him to appear at a council, the Diet of Worms, held in Germany, to give an account for his writings. They wanted to accuse him of heresy. He went there under the protection of the civil authorities. But there were lined up against him all of these Roman Catholic religious and secular princes. Even the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was presiding. The stakes were high. If they accused him of heresy and condemned him, they could put him to death. And back then, he would be put to death by being executed, publicly burned, Alive, probably. Just like they did John Huss a hundred years before. At the trial, Johann von Eck, the papal prosecuting attorney in effect, accused Martin Luther of heresy. And he said, recant. Will you recant? And all the religious elite that were there, all the religious cardinals and people of authority were just no doubt looking at Martin Luther with daggers coming out of their eyes at him because they wanted him removed and shut down. He asked for an opportunity to think it over. He went back. I mean, because he was the stakes were very high. He went back that night and according to what has been written, he was terrified. He was scared. He was praying out to God for grace and courage. He came back the next day. Johann von Eck asked him again, will you recant? And we all remember and know well his famous words. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or the councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict each other, I am bound to the Scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. See, like the church in Judea and the church in Thessalonica, the reason why they were faithful to the Word of God and the Gospel, even in the midst of persecution, was because they could answer that question, is the Bible the Word of man or the Word of God?
And Martin Luther, like the churches in Judea and the churches in Macedonia, resoundingly respond, it is the Word of God. And if it's God's Word, then I must live by it and my conscience is bound to it. Come what may, persecution, death, because this is not the Word of man, it is the Word of Almighty God. And that's the question before us this morning. When we are asked that question, how will we answer? Thomas Cranmer, one of the reformers in England, was arrested by Queen Mary, bloody Queen Mary, and was going to be put to death by burning at the stake for his commitment to the Gospel. As he thought about that and thought about being burned alive for his faith, he publicly renounced his commitment to the Protestant faith and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Queen Mary hated him so much anyway. She said, I don't care. I'm going to burn you anyway. That was her mistake. Because as Thomas Cramner was now awaiting his death, the Spirit of God revived his commitment to the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. This is the Word of God. I must believe it come what may. They gave him the opportunity to preach a final sermon before they executed him. He preached a good gospel sermon. He renounced the Pope. He recanted from his recantation. And they burned him alive at the stake. And the story goes that as he was beginning to be burned alive and the flames were were coming up around his body, he took his right hand, the very hand that had signed his initial recantation, where he recanted of the Gospel, and he said, Thou unworthy right hand, you must burn first. And he would stick that hand down in the fire. Why? Because the Spirit of God had awakened within his heart again the conviction that the Bible is not the Word of man. It is the Word of God. See, the degree that you and I will be fruitful in our Christian lives and the degree that we will be faithful even in in the midst of persecution for the cause of Christ will depend in a large degree how we answer that question. Is the Bible for you here this morning the Word of man or the Word of God? And if it's the Word of God, let God help us to act like it. May God help us. Well, our sins are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the Word of God. He brought us the greatest expression of the glory of the Father, but He came to die in our place to suffer for our sins that whoever puts their faith and trust in Christ alone can be forgiven forever. So it's our privilege as believers here. This table is for believers only. It's for believers to stop and just think about what Christ endured to save us from our sins the bodily, the soul torment that He endured in giving us the Word of God and giving us the Gospel.
that we might meditate and see the depth of His love for us and what He was willing to suffer to save us from, from the condemnation that we deserve. And then to respond to Him in praise and love and thanksgiving for saving our souls and dying for us on the cross. That's why He says, do this in remembrance of Me. And so it's our privilege to be able to, to do this. And as we have the bread and the cup, which both symbolize the, the body and the blood of Christ, the Lord wants us now to pause and to just find some of that joy in our salvation. Our joy in what Jesus has done to save us. And just to let, that, let the cup of our joy fill up in our hearts as we think about what we deserve, the wrath of God. But what we're going to get glory in heaven because of what Jesus and only because of what Jesus has done for us. So this should be a great celebration. Before we break the bread and distribute it, let's, uh, let's bow in prayer. Father, thank You for loving us so much that You sent Your Son to come down from heaven to live a sinless life that He might be the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And though we deserve the wrath of God, every single one of us in this room, yet those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ, we have the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. And now we have the privilege to remember our Lord and Savior in His death for us. If there's any here, Lord, this morning that have never done that, would you convict their hearts? That day of judgment is inevitable. It's going to come. Everyone will stand before God and unbelievers will give an account of every thought and word and deed and what a horrible judgment they await. But they can be forgiven today, right now, if they but turn from their sins and call upon the name of the Lord. For the promise is, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Lord, help them to do that. Open their hearts to do that, we pray. So Father, we thank You for Christ. Uh, may the Spirit give us some sweet thoughts now. Maybe thinking of Scripture that reminds us of the cross of Christ to just bring more joy into our hearts for all that Jesus has done. And we'll give You the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.